Good morning. How is everyone today? This set is amazing. I'm, I'm completely blown away by the work that you guys did, Monica and Joyce and Hank. Fantastic job. Um, when I was, when I was uh, growing up, I didn't go to VBS, and I know a lot of the kids in our church and, and the community really enjoy VBS every year. It's something that they look forward to throughout the school year. Um, but like I said, I didn't grow up going to VBS. I grew up looking forward to the summers when I would get to go to work with my dad. And as a child, I would, I would go and I would work with my dad, and we, we did uh, electrical work. And so that's a really safe occupation for children. I, uh, I recommend that anybody that does electrical work bring your kids along with you. And so because it wasn't very safe, my dad had a lot of rules and regulations. He would tell me, you're not allowed to touch this, 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 or this. So I had a very specific thing that I had to do. I had to get the, get the parts out of the truck and then watch my dad. I didn't, get to, I didn't get to do anything fun. I just, you know, I, I was just hands to lift heavy things as a child because I've always been very strong. Um, see, what we're going to learn today in Galatians is exactly that. Paul's going to say, look, at, at one point in time, we were children. We were bound by a set of ethics and rules, a set of regulations. Uh, but we no longer need those regulations because we have God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us to guide our lives. So uh, let's, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has died in our place and risen. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that you guide us in your word today, that we would learn and be a changed people, a people that learn to love you more, and a people that live out your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Now, uh, in in, uh, Galatians, a little background, Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, um, hence the name Galatians. And this this church is a a fairly young church, and and, uh, it's been overtaken by a group of people known as Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were, uh, they were most likely Jewish Christians, and they'd come into the church and they'd they'd told the, the new Christians that, hey, look, you need to, you need to observe the law of Moses. You need to observe uh, the, the things that Moses commanded us to do, and uh, you need to be circumcised, you need to uh, observe the, the holidays, you need to keep all the traditions of our father. And they said this for two reasons. They said, one, you need to do that because you're, that's how you enter covenant with God. That's how you become part of God's chosen people. And two, well, now that you're part of God's people, you need to, you need to know how to act. You need to know how to conduct yourself. And uh, so Paul writes a letter against that, saying, no, that's, that's not the case. And, and uh, Galatians is commonly known as a, a polemic against the law, which it's not really against the law as much as it is uh, against, against works righteousness. Now, when Paul writes this, he's, he's very frustrated. Some scholars even say that he's very angry, and, and that comes out a little bit in his writing. Um, but up until the point in our text so far, Paul's been saying, look, the... The law is not necessary for salvation. It can't give you salvation, and we're saved by grace through faith alone. So Paul knows that his audience is going to ask, well, if that's the case, if the law can't save us, then what's the purpose of the law? So let's pick up in verse 19, where Paul asks that very question. He says, what purpose, then, does the law serve? 
It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So again, Paul knows that these people are going to ask, hey, what's, what's the point of the law if it's not for salvation? Paul's answer is simple. He says it was added because of transgressions. Now, this is to say that, that people would need to be able to distinguish right from wrong. In Romans, it talks about that before the law, there was no sin. People had no idea what sin was. They had no rules or ethics to follow. See, if there's no law, you cannot possibly know that you've done something wrong. So transgressions were made clear. The law was added so that transgressions would be made clear. So basically, God gave humanity a set of rules and regulations to live by, a set of ethics, a code, if you will. But the, those rules and the regulations, they were, never, they were never meant to be permanent. Notice that Paul says, till. The word till is very important here. It shows that the law is temporary. He says, till the seed should come. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come. It's clear that, that's per- that that is temporary, that its purpose was only temporary. Now, earlier in verse 16, Paul says that that seed was Jesus. Now, knowing that uh, the seed is Jesus, we can infer that the law was added to illustrate sin until Jesus came to whom the promise was made. Now, to understand this text fully, we need to, we need to understand who the promise was made to and what the promise was. And for the sake of time, we don't have uh, enough time to go back in the text and, and see what that was. But uh, if you want to go back on your own later, that's great. I encourage you to do so. Uh, but what the promise was is that a Savior would be born. A Savior would come of Abraham's family, and he would provide salvation. He would provide eternal life. So all of this is to say that the law was added because of transgressions. That is to illustrate the problem of sin in our lives until the promised Messiah, which was Jesus, came to be a blessing to all nations by giving them eternal life. And then Paul continues by saying in verse 20, And it, that is the law, was added, was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Alright, so the law was given by God, right? Through angels, by the hand of a mediator. Now as you may have guessed, the mediator is Moses. Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. He was given the law on top of Mount Sinai. Uh, So Moses here is being referred to as a mediator. So God gave this law, the Mosaic law, through Moses, or I'm sorry, through angels by the hand of Moses. But then he goes on to say, now a mediator, Moses, does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now this is a a peculiar statement. When, When I read this the first time, I thought to myself, okay, God is one. Got it. There's one God. And what's your point, Paul? It doesn't make sense. But when, when, we, when we read this in the context of, of knowing that, that Paul here is, is talking about uh, the law and grace, how the law cannot annul the promise made to Abraham, it becomes clear that Paul is saying that a mediator had to make both parties agree to the terms. That's the very nature of a mediator. It's somebody that goes between two parties and makes them both happy. So Moses gave some of the law to appease the Hebrew people. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but Jesus confirms this. Look at uh, Mark 10, 
verse 2 to 9, he says, The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Look, Jesus makes the same point. He makes the same point that that God allowed for concession in the law. That God allowed Moses to give parts of the law that, that simply were not what he ever wanted. And that's okay, because the law still, still served its purpose. But God is one, right? So this, this phrase, God is one, it's saying, look, when God made this promise to Abraham, there was no mediator. This was a promise directly from the mouth of God. God spoke it directly to Abraham. It appeased no one but Abraham. Or, I'm sorry, no one but God. It was God's promise. There was no concession made. And therefore, the promise, the promise supersedes the law. Now, you might say, Corey, that doesn't make sense. That means the two are, two are in opposition. The two contrast each other, right? Well, my friends, Paul anticipated this question too, which is why he says in verse 21, Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. Look, Paul says the two are not in opposition because the law was never meant to give us life. It was never meant to save us, and it was never meant to provide justification. The law was only meant to point people to salvation, to illustrate that we're all broken people. See, Paul says if there could have been a law given that would save people, surely righteousness would have come through the law so that Jesus didn't have to die and be tortured on the cross in our place. But that's simply not the case. It's not. Jesus did have to die, which is why he did. The law was never meant to provide righteousness. Instead, it was only meant to, provide, to show us our need for salvation, to show us that there is sin in our lives. Notice what verse 22 says. It says, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Look, the law forces everyone to see that they've sinned. We've all been confined to sin under the scriptures. I challenge anyone here today to look into the law and declare yourself perfect. I can't do it. I come way short. We all do. And that's exactly Paul's point. He's saying, look, the law was never meant to provide justification. The law was only meant to show us that we need to be saved, that we can't earn our righteousness, that we don't have the right standing with God. Paul says that we've all been confined to sin through the law, but it's not for no purpose. It's so that we may see that we need salvation and come to believe in Jesus. When I was in high school, I, uh, I was a skateboarder, and I was not good at all, um, but... 
being a teenager, I had uh, a lot of guts. And so I would, I would try and slide my skateboard down rails. And um, it never worked. And one time I, I landed on the rail with my foot. The, the arch of my foot landed right on the rail. And I was instantly in agonizing pain. I was, I was screaming and it hurt. And I was laying on the ground and I curled up in a ball. And um, my friends looked at me and they said, get up. Get up. Quit being a baby. Get up. And so I, I got up, and for two or three days, I tried to walk on my foot, and it, it just it was excruciatingly painful. Every step I took was just awful. And so finally, my mom made me go to the doctor, even though I didn't want to because I was a big, tough guy. And uh, the, doctor, the doctor looks at my foot, and he says, well, I don't know what's wrong. Let's, let's take an x-ray. And so we took an x-ray, and, uh, and, and the doctor comes back, and he says, Yep, you, you broke a bone in your foot. It's not a bad break, but it's going to hurt. And so I asked him, I said, well, how do we fix it? And he, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, it'll, it'll fix on its own. Just give it time. So that's kind of what the law is like. The law is, is like that x-ray. It looks into us and sees that we're broken. See, when we look into the law, we can see that there's something that's not right. But the x-ray didn't fix me. Neither can the law. See, the only thing that can fix me is the blood of Jesus. And the only thing that can fix you is the blood of Jesus. He has atoned for our sins, our transgressions against the law that have been made clear. As it says here in Galatians, everyone can see that they're not perfect. We see that by looking into the law. We see that we've transgressed God's law. But it's not for no purpose. The purpose is that so you can see you're a sinner. So that you can see you need Jesus. And that you can come to believe in him. Look, if you've never believed in Jesus for eternal life, I encourage you to do so. Jesus offers salvation to all who will come to him. And all he asks is that you believe in him. I encourage you to make that choice today. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus. But what was the story before Jesus came? Well, prior to Jesus coming, the law was in place to keep us on the path to believe in Jesus. Notice verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Before faith came is Paul's way of saying that before Jesus showed up on the scene. See, Paul's been contrasting the law and grace. He's been contrasting works and justification by faith. So before Jesus came, we were kept under guard by the law so that we might realize we need salvation by faith in Christ. And that was revealed through the person of Jesus. See, Paul's making this astounding claim that the law could never save you. That that your efforts and trying to earn justification before God, it can't save you. And it was never supposed to. This is a, a remarkable statement for what it means to be Christians. And it was a remarkable statement for what the Jewish people thought in the first century. 
Paul concludes his, his purpose of the law in verse 24 here when he says, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now let's talk about that word tutor for a minute. Um, the word tutor is sometimes translated in uh, different versions of the Bible as instructor or schoolmaster. Uh, and, and the word is, is kind of odd. It, we don't have an exact translation in English because we don't have this position in our society. Uh, the idea of a tutor was, was, it was a, a trusted slave in an elite Roman family. And this, this slave was given charge over the children. And they were responsible for discipline and for, for teaching the child and for raising them. They taught them morality they taught the children how to read and write, all the, their school. They taught them everything they needed to know to one day become an heir of this family. So Paul's using this word tutor, and he's saying, he's saying look, we were, we were under the law. The law was our tutor. It was, it was our caregiver that was designed to teach us what we needed to know to become an heir. But after we're taught to be an heir, we no longer need that tutor, which is exactly what verse 25 says. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Remember that Paul is contrasting grace with the law. And he's using the words faith and tutor to do this. So this verse is Paul saying that after grace through faith in Jesus has come, we're no longer under the law. This is a a crushing blow to what the Judaizers were telling the people in Galatia. And it's a crushing blow to the way a lot of Christians live. Now, if you recall, the Judaizers were claiming that to be part of the people of God, they had to adopt the law so that they could be part of the covenant. And so that they would know how to conduct themselves so that they would have a set of ethics to conform to. See, Paul's point is that ritual observance of commands and just conforming to a list of rules doesn't give you any place or position in the family of God. But this this text makes it very clear that the law has served its purpose. And now grace has entered. There's a new dispensation on the scene. There's a new point in history that has come about. Notice what verse 26 says. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Look, it's by grace through faith that we're saved. We cannot earn it. We cannot, we cannot conduct ourselves through a system of ethics or rules and become children of God. It's by grace through faith. Look, Paul's saying ritual observance of commands and ordinances and tradition, that doesn't, doesn't help. But then in, in the next verse, it seems like Paul's going to contradict himself. In verse 27, it says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So it's almost as though Paul is saying, Hey, it's by faith in Christ that you're saved, and you put on Christ when you're baptized into him. But it's not, it's not what Paul's saying. 
for the sake of time, again, we don't, we don't have time to go in-depth into, into baptism, so we're only going to look at it rather quickly. But let's back up for a minute, okay? Let's talk again about, about this tutor. This, this tutor, he was responsible for, for raising the children. Now, at a, a certain point in time, the, the father of this child would decide, okay, my, my son or daughter is now an adult. They're now able to be an heir of my household. And so the father would say, the time has come. And he would declare his, his son or daughter to be an adult. And he would throw this big party. And uh, for the sons, the, the heirs of the household, he would, he would uh, bring out this toga, right? And it's called this toga virilis. And it was this big ceremony with food and people. And, and just, it was a gigantic ceremony. Big party. And uh, so what would happen is, is the... The father would bring this toga out, and he would, he would take the toga that his son was wearing, and he would put this new toga around him. And he, he would say, I now clothe you with this toga. So what Paul's doing here is he's using, he's using this, this, uh, this analogy, this, this illustration that's running throughout this text of, of the tutor-child relationship to show us something. He's showing us that, look, when we believe in Jesus, we've identified with him. This text isn't about baptism in water. It's not about baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's about being in the identity of Christ. You have identified with him. Now, there are other instances in the scriptures where, where Paul uses baptism, uh, and, and even in the Gospels as well, uh, to, to indicate identifying with something. And I've listed those on your handout. Uh, I'm not going to turn there and read them right now, but for your own personal study, I encourage you to read those. But Paul's using this word baptism to show that we've identified as identified with Christ. That's his point in verse 26, verse 27, and 28. He says, look, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ. You've identified with Christ. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've identified with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Look, you've identified with Christ by faith in him. Your identity is now with Jesus Paul's not declaring that people need to be baptized to be justified. He's showing that everyone that believes has identified with Christ. And they have the same standing with Christ. The same standing in front of God, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. See, this is not a statement about water baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit for a means of justification. It is a statement about your standing with God. It's a statement about you being one with every other believer in Christ. It becomes very easy uh, for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, to think that I have some kind of special standing with God. I think we're all guilty of it at some point or another. We think, well, I've got my theology together, so I'm better than that church that doesn't. Well, I've, I've overcome that sin, so I'm better than that person. But Paul's point is very clear here. Paul's point is that that only divides the body. All those that believe in Jesus are the body of Christ. And when we think we have some kind of special standing with God, when we think we have some kind of 
better righteousness with God than other people because of what we've done, we're wrong. And we're only doing damage to what God is doing in the world. Because we're splitting up the church. We're not being unified. So I encourage you today to reconsider the way you see you're standing with God. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of decide whether or not you're saved. I mean that in the sense of decide whether you think you're better than other Christians or other people. Like, we're all guilty of that at some time, myself included. See, the apostle here, he's declaring that no one is superior to anyone else in the church because we're all heirs of the promise of salvation through faith. And then verse 29, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So back in Genesis 12, God made this promise to, to Abraham and he promised him that he'd be a blessing to all nations, as we learned earlier, and that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Now here we see that Those that believe are part of the family of Abraham. When a person comes to faith, they're grafted into the family of Abraham. That is, the people of God. Now you might say, Corey, how can I be a son of Abraham if I'm not Jewish? Well, that's a good question. Turn with me to Romans 4, starting in verse 11. It says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So then the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham, the heirs of the promised Messiah and eternal life are those that believe. It's not only people with a Jewish, Jewish heritage. See, we're not ushered into the, the family of God through observance of the law, through circumcision. That's what many of the Judaizers thought. And so did several of the Jews in the first century. No, rather it's by faith. And it always has been. Notice there again, it says that but also, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Abraham was justified by his faith before law observance. All right, so up to this point, we've, we've learned a few things. Let's recap real quick before, before we move on, because there's a, a progression to this, to this thought that Paul has going on here. Um, so up to this point in our study, we've learned that the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ to illustrate sin in our lives. Uh, It was never meant to save us or prove us righteous, give us a standing with God. No grace through faith and faith alone, not ritual tradition or a system of ethics and rules provides justification. It's only grace through faith. And all those who have faith in Jesus are heirs of the promise of eternal life. See, Paul's argument against the Judaizers is very clear here. He says the law observance is unnecessary and only faith can justify a person. Now that this new dispensation has been ushered in, this this point where where Christ overcomes sin and death, law observance 
is not necessary. Now, from this point in the letter, Paul's going to launch into a series of illustrations uh, and examples of, of his point. But he's also going to ad- address the other claim that the Judaizers were presenting to the Christians, which was how to conduct yourself as a member of the family of God. If you recall, I said earlier that the Judaizers were saying, look, you need a set of rules and ethics to live by so that you know how to act, right? Paul's going to say, that's not the case. And far too often, we see today people come to faith, and all they do is look for a set of ethics to conform to. Well, if I don't do this, 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 and this, well, then I'll be sanctified. And in a way, that's, that's correct. That is part of sanctification. But it's much more complicated than following a list of rules. Paul's going to illustrate this starting in 4.1 when he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the appointed time by the father. So Paul's reverting again to this illustration of a child being under a tutor. He's, he's saying, uh, if you recall, the, the child, prior to his father deciding that he was an adult now, uh, was under the care of the tutor. Now, in this illustration, Paul says that the child did not differ at all from a slave. So, so the tutor would take the child and he would, he would dress them up just like he would dress his own children up. Uh, so he would look just like a slave. He was bound by the same rules as the, the tutor's children. He was disciplined in the same way as, as the other children, the slave's children. The only difference between the slave's children and the tutor, or I'm sorry, the heir, was what would happen at adulthood. And what would happen at adulthood is that the heir would be just that. He would inherit everything the father owned. So Paul's saying, look, when the child was under the tutor, he wasn't any different than than a slave. He wasn't any different than the slave's children. He didn't have any special standing in the family. He didn't have any any kind of grand illusions of, of being somebody special. No, he was treated just like everyone else. But the thing is, this, this child would later become an adult. And he would, he would inherit everything that his father owns, which is why Paul says, though he is the master of all. See, Paul's associating the law with childhood. And when he says heir, he's talking about becoming a person in Christ, believing in Christ. See, when this person is a child, he's bound to a set of rules and regulations. But when he becomes an adult, he's entrusted to take part in the family business. He's allowed to participate and conduct himself as a person that's working with his family. Paul's going to say the same thing in verse 3, that that we were like that child. Even so, we, when we were children, were under bondage. I'm sorry, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. All right, so up until this point, I have uh, intentionally left something out. But... To really see the full scope of this text, we're going to go over it now. Notice the personal pronouns that Paul uses here. They'll be highlighted up on the screen. There you go. In, in red, you see we, our, us. I missed an us in there somewhere. 
It's in there. I know it is. I missed it. Um, but then in, in blue, you see you, you, you. And it's in uh, chapter 3, 19 to 25 that we see we. And then 26 to 29, Paul switches to you. And then 4, 1 to 5, he says we again. And then 4, 6 to 7, he switches back to you. Now, Paul's not doing this on accident, and it seems subtle and insignificant, but it's not. See, the we and the us and the our in this passage is referring to to the Jewish people, the Jewish people that were once under the law. And the you is referring to Gentiles, the Galatians. So Paul here is saying that before Jesus, we the Jews were like children, entrusted to the law, and were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, the, the word elements of the world, it's, uh, it's this, this word that really means unbreakable rules. It, it's a, a concept that developed uh, from a sundial, but it was used to describe things like the, the order of the alphabet. The order of the alphabet doesn't change. It's an unbreakable set of rules. So Paul's saying, look, we Jews... We were bound, like little children, to unbreakable rules. But we all know that everybody breaks them. See, Paul's using this this phrase here to describe the nation of Israel. Like a child, bound to a set of rules and ethics. But Paul says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Just like in the toga varilla ceremony, it's the father that decides the appropriate time to bring the child into adulthood. And when that time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to die and return to life to redeem those that were under the law. And the purpose of this is so that they would have faith, that they would receive the adoption as sons, that they would be fully welcomed as an adult into the family, capable of participating in the work that their father is doing and contributing to the family, not bound any longer by a strict set of ethics to conform to. Paul's saying freedom from tradition and ritual has been realized. It's here today. We, the Jews, are no longer bound to any of that. And you, too, have this freedom. Notice verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Look at the personal pronoun used again. Paul shifts dramatically. It's very obvious in the text. He had said, we Jews were freed from childhood and slavery to sin to receive the adoption as sons through faith. And you too, Gentiles, Galatians, have this adoption. And because you are sons, having never been under the law, received the spirit of Christ in your hearts through faith, you can cry out, Abba. As you probably know, Abba's a very intimate term that, that shows an extremely close relationship to a father. Look, you can now cry out to God in this intimate way, the same way that Jesus did on the cross, knowing that you're an heir, an heir through Christ. 
When I was working with my dad, I had that set of rules. I was bound to him. And uh, as, as my dad and I worked together, we started to grow closer. We were spending more time together. I was learning from him. He was learning more about me. We developed an intimacy. And I learned more. I learned what I was doing working with my dad. I learned what he was doing. See, Paul says the same thing. Because we have been given the Holy Spirit, we have direct access to God. Access to learn and grow. Access to ask questions and learn how to participate in our Father's work. In what God's doing in the world. How he's reconciling the world to the created order. And not just following a set of ethics. Look, Paul's saying that rules, a set of ethics, they're for little children. And you Galatians, you Christians that have received the Holy Spirit, you're full-grown children. You're full-grown sons. You're heirs through Christ. You are not little children anymore. So why do you want to be bound to a set of ethics to conform to? Now, there are still guidelines for how to participate as, a, as an heir of God. And Paul's going to go on to lay that out in chapter 5. And I encourage you to read that. But Paul gives us one rule to do it. The title of my message today, uh, I forgot to mention earlier, is New Life, New Rule. See, we have a new life in Christ. And Paul gives us one new rule. And that's to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Children live by a set of rules and things not to do. But walking in the Spirit is not a list of don'ts. Walking in the Spirit transforms you into the person that loves and cares for what, is God, what God is doing in the world. And it allows you to participate in that because of the intimacy you've developed with God. Because you've cried out to him, saying, Abba. See, you are now capable of living free from a strict set of ethics and rules. You're capable of accessing God and finding out how he wants you to further the kingdom of God on earth. You're capable of accessing God to find out how you can participate in the reconciliation process. See, walk, walking in the Spirit, it's not just doing, I'm sorry, it's not just not doing a bunch of things. It's about doing things. It's about becoming the person that God has made you in Christ. Now, as I said, there are still guidelines. There are certain things that you shouldn't do. But there are things that you should do. And walking in the Spirit, well, that'll produce those things. When, when, when I was working with my dad as we developed this intimacy, I, I learned what he was doing, what his job was. I learned what the end result was. 
And my dad and I became so close that we didn't even have to talk and we could look at one another and we could know what we were doing. And I knew what I needed to do to help my dad. And my dad knew what I was doing so that we'd get the job done. See, in the same way, when we walk in the Spirit, we're able to commune with God in a way that it just becomes natural for us to act as Christ acted, as God would have us act, like heirs participating in the family business. Look, when we focus more on walking in the Spirit, being sensitive to God's will, operating on the strength of God, being constantly aware of how God would have us act in every situation, praying unceasingly with thanksgiving, loving people as Jesus did, and not giving in to temptation. Temptation, excuse me. That's when you're walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit isn't just avoiding temptation. Isn't just avoiding not doing the don'ts. See, walking in the Spirit is about not doing the don'ts. But it's about something much more. It's about seeking God in every word, in every action, in every deed, every minute of every day, constant reliance upon the Lord and His strength to be a minister of reconciliation in the world. See, walking in the Spirit is doing the do's as well as not doing the don'ts. Walking in the Spirit means that you do choose joy, do love people, do have hope, do rejoice in trials, do give yourself away completely, do trust in God, do live a grateful life, and do become the the person God has made you in Christ, the person that you will live as for all eternity. My question for you today is this. Are you walking in the Spirit, thinking and acting like an adult? A full-grown heir wearing your toga virilis? Or are you yet a child, trying to uphold a set of ethics and nothing more? Are you only trying to refrain from the don'ts? See, walk in the Spirit and you'll not only uphold the ethics of the Scriptures, You won't do the don'ts, but you'll also do the do's. You'll become a person that is sensitive to the will of God, that learns to love Christ as he loves you. And you'll develop an intimacy, an intimacy that cries out, Abba. You have a new life. And the new rule for that new life is to walk in the Spirit of God that you've been given. Let's pray. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the law, for allowing it to illustrate the sin in our lives. Thank you that we've seen that and have come to know your Son because of it. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you for the life that you've given us because of that. God, we ask that we would learn to follow the rule, the rule of walking in the Spirit, so that we uphold the ethics of the Scripture, but more than that, 
become the person that you've already made us in Christ. God, we pray that we would be a people that are ministers of reconciliation in the world. And we ask that you receive the glory in that and that you encourage us and strengthen us to do that through your Holy Spirit. We pray all of these things in your Son's glorious name.